Woodstock 1969 was a seminal cultural event. It kicked off an everlasting culture of music festivals which attracted the restless youth of the time. Not much about that had changed by 1994 when festival goers at Woodstock 94 were handed a flyer with black and white photos of two teenagers who'd gone missing 21 years earlier. The flyer featured images made with new technology to create computer-generated renderings of what these missing teens might look like after all that time had passed. It was a last-ditch effort in one of the oldest missing persons cases in United States history. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a person who used to be a teenager and did some pretty risky things. Sometimes I can't help but believe there must be a god because I don't know how else to explain the fact that I survived my teen years. The two kids in today's story weren't as lucky as I was. For Bonnie Bickwit and Mitch Weiser, a couple of especially risky choices resulted in their undoing, we think. Unless they're somewhere living life under new identities, which is unlikely, but in truth, no one knows. Before we get into this week's episode, I'd like to issue this earnest reminder that we recently started our very own Strange and Unexplained Patreon, where I'm working hard to put out three additional bonus episodes every month, plus ad-free versions of our regular weekly episodes and other fun goodies. Join us over at patreon.com slash strange and unexplained for more stories than ever before. But for now, on with the show. Mitchell Weiser and Benita Bonnie Bickwit were a couple of middle-class Jewish kids from stable families in Brooklyn. Mitch lived with his parents in Midwood, a relatively diverse neighborhood that was predominantly Jewish, though not yet as orthodox as it would become in the following decades. Which is to say, a Jewish family in Midwood in the 60s and 70s wasn't isolated from mainstream culture. The same could be said for Bonnie's neighborhood of Borough Park, Brooklyn. A piece in the New York Times from April 9, 1974, described Borough Park this way, quote, The neighborhood is largely Orthodox Jewish. There are pizzerias, but the signs advertise kosher pizza. A sign in the Carvel store a block from the Bickwits' home reads, Shomrer Shahos, closed Saturdays. The streets in the neighborhood are filled with bearded Hasidim, end quote. Speaking of which, if you've never been to a Carvel, please make it a point to add it to your bucket list. A vanilla soft serve with rainbow sprinkles in a sugar cone from Carvel is mwah, chef's kiss. Also, if you are familiar with Carvel, did you know that Cookie Puss is just Fudgy the Whale upside down? And without Cookie Puss, there may never have been the Beastie Boys. In other words, thank goddess for Carvel. Mitch and Bonnie both came from more liberal Jewish families and were not part of the Orthodox communities around them. They met in the early 70s at John Dewey High School, which was, at the time, a new experimental school for high achievers. One of their teachers described Bonnie and Mitch as, quote, two extremely articulate, extremely intelligent, socially involved youngsters, end quote. Bonnie's mother, Ray, recalled in an interview with the New York Times... 
They cared about all the causes. They rang bells for McGovern. They were active in an ecology program, and Bonnie helped out at a kindergarten in an elementary school. She was very sensitive. One summer, she went to Chicago and saw how the animals were slaughtered. She vowed she would never eat meat again. And Mitch's mother surely told the Times. They were two very determined youngsters. By the summer of 73, Mitch, now 16, and Bonnie, now 15, had been dating for about a year, which is, frankly, a long time for kids that age, right? That's about five years in adult time. Bonnie took a position at Camp Wellmet, described in a piece in the Jewish Weekly in 1998 as, quote, a popular summer spot for middle-class Jewish kids 90 miles from the city. Sponsored by the UJA Federation of Jewish Philanthropies, it served as a kind of fresh air fund for thousands, end quote. And Mitch was working as a photographer's assistant at a small shop on Coney Island where he'd earned enough for the $10 ticket to Watkins Glen's Summer Jam. Almost 70 bucks in today money. So next time someone goes $70, why in my day that only costs $10? You can explain that it's the same thing and to keep their shirt on. This was four years after the historic Woodstock Festival in nearby Bethel, New York, and the Watkins Glen Summer Jam anticipated a crowd of 150,000. But on the day of the concert, July 28, 1973, somewhere around 600,000 flooded in through the gates that were eventually left open because so many people had arrived that the ticket takers gave up. Apparently, enough people were bummed to have missed out on Woodstock that they were determined not to miss this next outdoor summer concert. Unlike Woodstock, which went on over three days, the summer jam was only one day long and only had three acts, the Allman Brothers Band, the Grateful Dead, and the band. Despite that, it was the largest audience for a pop festival ever, eclipsing Woodstock by about 200,000 people. In a piece on youdiscovermusic.com marking the 50th anniversary of the concert, journalist Paul Sexton wrote, quote, In retrospect, that summer's day at Watkins Glen defined the very idea of the extended jam session that became one of the characteristics of 1970s rock, end quote. So the next time you're at a Fish concert and you suddenly find yourself saying, is this the same song that started 40 minutes ago? You have Watkins Glen Summer Jam to thank. Anyway, Mitch and his buddy Larry Marion were all set to go to the Summer Jam when at the last minute, Larry's mother said she had a bad feeling and forbade him from going. So Mitch called up Bonnie, who was more than happy to take the free ticket. But Mitch and Bonnie were young teenagers, and one well-known and immutable fact about teenagers is they are notoriously bad at planning, and really bad at weighing risks against the possibility of a good time because of the whole undeveloped prefrontal cortex and the poor conception of mortality. Mitch's mother would later tell the New York Times, Mitchell told us he was going to meet Bonnie at camp and then take a bus the 75 miles to Watkins Glen. Just before he left the house, I told him that I wished he wouldn't go. But he told me he would be back by Monday. And she told Eric J. Greenberg for the Jewish Week in 1998, I wanted to give him more money so he wouldn't hitchhike. All he had was 25, but he ran out the door. In a 2000 interview with MSNBC, Mitch's only sibling, Susan, said, My mother just didn't want him to go, and there was a lot of pleading 
from her for him not to go. She said, let me get you some more money, and he, he ran out of the house. Meanwhile, Bonnie's parents had no idea at all that their 15-year-old daughter was planning on leaving her sleepaway camp job to go to the concert. Here's what we know about how things unfolded over the next few hours. Mitch left his house in Midwood, Brooklyn on July 26th and took a bus to Narrowsburg, a town near Bonnie's camp. From there, he took a cab to pick up Bonnie. Once at camp, where he'd arrived around midnight, he called his sister and said he was already out of money. Susan recalled telling him, Look, if you don't have the money to go to the concert, don't go. And he didn't want to hear it. Bonnie apparently made a big sign that read to Watkins Glen, and on the morning of July 27th, despite the warnings and pleadings of Mitch's family, the pair hitched a ride from a trucker from camp to town, where they thanked the driver as they climbed down from his truck. According to the piece in the Times from 1974, quote, the driver remembered that as he drove off, he saw the two teenagers dressed in jeans and t-shirts standing at the side of the road, sleeping bags on their backs, holding a cardboard sign that read Watkins Glen, end quote. That driver wasn't named in the New York Times piece, and it's unclear where that information came from, whether it was a direct conversation the journalist had with the driver or a rumor they'd heard. For the record, I don't know who wrote the article in the Times. It's from 1974, and there isn't a byline. And in an interview in 1994 for the Jewish Week, Detective Lieutenant Anthony Suarez, who, quote, was given the case in 1994, end quote, said the truck driver story cannot be confirmed and is only speculation, which is pretty crazy since the New York Times is the New York Times. But there you have it. Whether or not the truck driver story is true, it was the last account of the whereabouts of Mitch Weiser and Bonnie Bickwit. There they stood two kids on the side of the road with sleeping bags strapped to their backs, slowly disappearing in the rear view, never to be seen again. Here's a fun fact about Jews. We are, as a people, in general, a little anxious. 3,000 years of persecution will do that to a people. The generational trauma has led to all kinds of conditions and syndromes that are common in Jewish people, from IBS to Usher syndrome, which is not as fun as it sounds, to something called maple syrup urine disease, which is also, despite its name, a serious fucking bummer, to just plain old general anxiety. If my husband is more than 10 minutes later than I expected, I assume he's dead in a ditch somewhere. It's not a fun way of life. So you can imagine the Wiser's sinking feeling of dread when Mitch didn't show back up at home by Monday. That same Monday, July 30th, Bonnie's mother Ray got a call from Camp Wellmet. She told MSNBC, My husband was home and he received the call asking if Bonnie was home and he said, no, she's not home, isn't she at camp? And that's when we found out. Wasting no time, the Bickwits drove up to Camp Wellmet and reported Bonnie missing to local authorities. Unfortunately, and unsurprisingly, especially for the time, police weren't too worried about the missing teens. There was a pervasive feeling at the time, backed up by some statistics, that teens were running away to join communes and practice free love, man. 
American psychologist, professor, and author Timothy Leary had introduced the phrase, turn on, tune in, and drop out, which was adopted as a kind of hippie slogan. Essentially, it's the same philosophy as Buddhism, just hippified. It really means turn off the noise of everything that isn't real and connect back to one's own humanity and the collective humanity. But kids and parents alike took it to mean take drugs and drop out of society, which Leary insisted was not what he meant, despite his fervent belief in psychedelics as a psychiatric tool. So the police assumed Mitch and Bonnie had just run off to join the counterculture. Bonnie's mother, Ray, told Jewish Weekly, I went to the town of Monticello. The attitude was, they are away for the summer and they will come back. They dismissed it. And a former camp director at WellMet said, Everyone just thought that they decided to do the Kerouac thing that summer, traveling the country a la beat author Jack Kerouac rather than return to camp. She was my buddy's babysitter at camp when they split. Being from the Woodstock contingent, I didn't think twice about it until people started discussing their disappearance. Statistics at the time, much like today, showed that the vast majority of children who were reported missing were either found by authorities or returned home on their own. But even if it was true that they ran away voluntarily, these were still minors, and the cops should have been a little more concerned. In this case, there was some evidence that supported the runaway theory. Bonnie had apparently snuck back home to Brooklyn the week before she went missing while her parents were out of town and got $80 she'd been saving up to buy herself a bike. And according to a piece in the New York Daily News from 2000, the couple had, quote, secretly exchanged wedding rings that summer, end quote. Plus, in a letter to her parents she sent just three days before she disappeared, Bonnie wrote, Dear Mom and Dad, I love you both very much. Up here, I have my independence. If, on my time off, I feel as though I want to get up and leave, and it is physically possible for me to do so, I do it. I don't have to tell anyone if I don't want to. I really want for you two to allow me to and not mind my traveling and doing things. Ugh, being a teenager is the worst. For any of you out there who are teens or heading into adolescence, believe it or not, quite a few parents have written to tell me their kids love my show, Future Leaders of America. Please know that we adults get it. I mean, to be honest, we kind of don't because we didn't have social media or YouTube growing up and that shit changes everything. But still, feeling like you're ready to have your independence and be out in the world is a pretty universal teenage feeling. And take it from someone who left home and went to college at 16. You're not ready. All that freedom is too much. It's like being handed a trunk full of candy. You're so jazzed at how much candy you suddenly have and you binge the shit out of it because you can and then you feel like absolute trash. But you don't learn. You do the same thing over and over because it's there and you can. And before you know it, you have a permanent stomach ache and you're out of money because you spent it all on trunks full of candy. It takes a certain level of brain development to be able to understand how to deal with that much candy. And that can only come with age. Personally, as someone who was a teenager at one point and is now a parent, I don't know how comfortable I'd feel letting my 15-year-old travel and do things. I was definitely not ready at 15. 
I would have eaten all the candy, if you catch my drift. Plus, also, teens, life is long. Childhood is tragically short, and paying rent is not fun. If I were you, I'd let my parents pay my way as long as humanly possible. There will be plenty of time for candy. Anyway. With police completely lacking an appropriate sense of urgency in their children's whereabouts, the Wisers and Bickwits took matters into their own hands, mailing out thousands of missing persons flyers with pictures and descriptions of their kids. According to the piece from 1974 in the New York Times, the parents also ran an ad in an underground paper. The ad simply read, quote, Bonnie and Mitchell, please call home. Your parents are frantic with worry. Bonnie's mom, Ray, told MSNBC in 2000 that all she could do at that point was hope. Reading that letter, I felt, well, she'll be gone for the summer and come back certainly by the end of the summer and back to school again. Mitch and Bonnie did not return home in time to start school again in the fall. But around that time, Bonnie's father, Theodore, received an odd letter from an Indian reservation in South Dakota asking for a contribution. Ray told the New York Times, Bonnie and Mitchell were very interested in Indian affairs. I thought that maybe they were at this reservation. After all, how did they get my address? Of course, it's possible Bonnie had sent away for information on volunteering or something, though why it would be addressed to her father, who knows. At any rate, the parents sent 500 letters and flyers to reservations and mission schools across the country, but that led nowhere. A short time later, a pharmacist in the East Village thought he might have filled a prescription for Bonnie, but that turned out to be nothing, too. Then there was a phone call to Indiana charged to the Bickwits bill that they were hoping meant maybe Bonnie had called a friend in Indiana. But the phone company checked and said it was a mistaken charge. Then there was a couple in Dover, New Hampshire, who were absolutely sure they'd seen Bonnie and Mitch on a bus from Boston to Dover. Mitch's mom, Shirley, told the Times. They were certain that they had seen the children. They said they had noticed the youngsters because they were so young looking. We spoke to the police in Dover and wrote the newspapers there, but so far no one has reported anything. Desperate, the families reached out to psychics. One psychic told them she had a vision of the teens lying in a gravel pit. Not much help. Another psychic who operated a storefront on Long Island called Mind Control told the parents to bring pieces of their missing children's unwashed clothes. Shirley told the Times, He felt Mitchell's polo shirt and told us he had sensed illness around the ears and throat. I was very impressed because the last time Mitchell had worn that shirt, he had been sick with a sore throat. I wonder if maybe Mitch had left a cough drop wrapper in the shirt's pocket? Ray, Bonnie's mother, added, After he felt the clothing, he said he could give us a good background. He said he could feel they were in a cold area, perhaps Vermont or New Hampshire. And he saw Bonnie limping. He also asked if he could have some of their letters. He was going to sleep on them that night and get in touch with us. That was in December. We haven't heard from him since. 
The families raised $675 and hired Edward Goldfader, president of Tracer's Company of America, to investigate. He told the Times, All we can assume is that Bonnie and Mitchell are out there. The parents have run down every alley they can think of. Indeed, both families had spent quite a bit of money in their efforts to track down their children. Ray told the Times, The Indian mailing alone cost us over $100. The costs keep going up, but how can I put a price on my daughter? And remember, that's $100 in 1970s money. That's nearly $700 today. But all the money and mailers and psychics and tips weren't getting the Wisers and Bickwits any closer to finding their children. For more than two decades, there was nothing. No leads, no clues, no information. And then in 1986, Mitch's father, Sidney, got a collect call. His daughter, Susan, recounted it for MSNBC. My father got a phone call. An operator gets on the phone and says, Hi, I have a collect call from Bonnie. Would you accept the charges? And my father goes, Yes, yes, of course. And the operator comes back and says, I'm sorry she hung up. My father always felt like he shouldn't have acted so excited to hear from her, that she had lost a nerve, but we're always hoping that it was really Bonnie. Could you imagine worrying that you sounded too excited to hear from the missing girlfriend of your missing son after 13 years? What a nightmare. By 1994, the families had not relented and were still pressuring law enforcement to help them find their loved ones. So the case was handed over to Detective Lieutenant Anthony Suarez for a fresh pair of eyes. One of the first things Suarez did was head to the Woodstock 94 Festival and pass out flyers with descriptions and information about Bonnie and Mitch. A case manager for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children told Newsday that year that the Flyers could trigger some memories because the Watkins Glen Summer Jam hadn't been that long ago. Call me forgetful, because I definitely am, but 21 years seems like an awfully long time under the best of circumstances. Then you add drugs to the mix. I'm sorry, but the chances of people remembering someone from back then at a one-day festival seem slim. Not only that, but the bill at Woodstock 94 included Green Day, Violent Femmes, Salt and Peppa, Nine Inch Nails, Metallica, and Cypress Hill. Not exactly your dad's music festival. Unless you are a teenager listening to this, in which case it absolutely was your dad's music festival. I'm willing to bet a large portion of the attendees at Woodstock 94 weren't even alive in 73. To be fair, there were a few musicians at Woodstock 94 who played in 73 at Watkins Glen Summer Jam, and Suarez was hoping to interview people who might have traveled around the country following bands like the Grateful Dead. But again, people who travel the country with jam bands aren't generally known for their ability to recall much of anything. No offense, old hippies. You have many other great qualities. And yet, despite canvassing Woodstock 94 and having a computer-generated image of what Bonnie and Mitch might have looked like then, nothing useful came from the renewed effort. In 1998, journalist Eric Greenberg, in his article for Jewish Week, highlighted the incompetence and investigative failures of law enforcement handling the case. 
And it wasn't just the families who were pointing fingers. New York City Police Lieutenant Philip Mahoney, commanding officer of the missing person squad, called it a scandal and said the unit had been mismanaged for years. Friends of the missing teens complained that no one ever bothered to interview them. Apparently, only one friend of the couple was interviewed by police at the time. Greenberg also discovered that the Sullivan County Police Department had lost files pertaining to the case, quote, including any investigatory notes that were taken at the time, end quote. And while the Sullivan County and New York City Police Departments were supposed to have worked together, the families say it was clear they weren't. Suarez couldn't even find the original police file on Bonnie and Mitch. He had to start a brand new file for them. Greenberg points out, quote, The blundering is crucial. The files may have contained copies of Bonnie and Mitchell's dental records, one of the only ways to identify their bodies after all these years. Both their dentists are dead, and original dental records long destroyed, the families say. End quote. No one had ever even entered Mitch and Bonnie's names into the FBI's National Missing Persons databank. Two years after Greenberg's article came out in 2000, and around the time MSNBC aired its special on Mitch and Bonnie, then-New York Attorney General Elliot Spitzer and Governor George Pataki agreed to dedicate more resources to Bonnie and Mitch's disappearance. They assigned two top-level investigators dedicated to the case. According to a proposal to TV show 48 Hours that Mitch's sister Susan wrote... Investigator William Kilgallen from NYS, OAS, and Investigator Roy Striva from the NYS Police Bureau of Criminal Investigations Major Crimes interviewed everyone from 27 years ago who were involved at Camp Wellmet. They tried to recreate Mitchell and Bonnie's last day. While the recreation business was going on, according to another piece by Eric Greenberg, Detective Lieutenant Suarez admitted that he had, quote, made no attempt to find any lost witness since being given the case in 1994. He had not tried to contact the original investigator, now retired and living in Florida, end quote. So, here we are. We just passed the 50th anniversary of the disappearance of Mitchell Weiser and Bonnie Bickwit, and all we have after all this time are theories. Through most of the investigation, law enforcement maintained their theory that the kids had run away. Bonnie's sister Cheryl told MSNBC, She was, in fact, very unhappy at her job. Ultimately, I think she felt like she was being exploited, that she was working 16 hours a day and he wouldn't give her the night off, and she quit and said, I'm leaving. And she told Eric Greenberg that Bonnie had seemed a little off the last time she had seen her. Her behavior was a little strange. She seemed to have a lot on her mind. And Mitch's mother admitted to the Times, Mitchell wanted to go to an out-of-town college. We told him we couldn't afford it. He was going to go to Brooklyn College when he graduated this January. He was only 10 minutes from home. Perhaps he was resentful of that. His sister went so far as to call Mitch's attitude morose the night he left for the concert. Bonnie's parents also told the Times that their relationship with their daughter had become strained. She wanted more freedom, things like apparently wearing jeans and a polo shirt and no bra, and her parents were more traditional and protective. 
And Mitch's mother wondered if maybe her nagging him about brushing his teeth and cutting his hair drove him away. But all of that seems like pretty standard teenage angst. Nothing to run away and disappear forever over. Plus, Mitch's mom said he was a very conscientious kid. He would call home if he was going to be more than a half hour late. And Bonnie was close with her dad. Ray told the New York Times... It's hard to believe Bonnie would run away knowing what it would do to her father. I know how she worried about him. Her friends at camp said she would cry at night when she talked about him. Bonnie and Mitch's friends also roundly rejected the idea that they ran away. They were just not the kinds of kids who would up and abandon their lives. That said, Bonnie technically did run away to join Mitch for the summer jam, and there had to have been someone after that one truck driver who dropped them off in town and saw them as they made their way to Watkins Glen. In fact, after the MSNBC piece aired, a man named Alan Smith called police saying he believed that the couple had made it to the concert because, he said, He had hitched a ride home along with Mitch and Bonnie in an orange VW bus with Pennsylvania plates the day after the concert. He said that he and the driver were very stoned, but Bonnie and Mitch weren't. Smith also claimed at some point along the way the group pulled over for a swim. According to Susan Weiser's proposal to 48 Hours, He heard Bonnie scream and then saw her in the river. He saw Mitchell jump in after her to save her. He said he and the driver watched as the kids were pulled by the current around a bend. Smith and the unknown driver went back in the van and drove away. They never notified police of the accident or tried to get help. Smith and the driver parted ways at the turnoff to Pennsylvania where the bus was headed. Investigators Strever and Kilgallen felt this was a plausible story, though Strever was not totally convinced. He felt that Smith gave conflicting information and to this day shows no remorse about not reporting it. Smith shrugs off any attempt to discuss guilt. He's now 400 pounds. Um, okay. What color is his hair? What color are his eyes? Like, why are you telling us his weight? Are you trying to imply he ate his guilt? What is happening here? Anyway, ultimately, Smith's story wasn't entirely verifiable because he claimed he never saw their IDs or any identifying items they would have had on them, even though their belongings must have been left behind in the van. Then, in April 2001, again according to Susan Weiser's proposal, some inmates in Maryland came forward to say they heard a known serial killer confess to murdering Bonnie and Mitch. She claimed this psychopath was in Poughkeepsie and Hyde Park in New York in 1973. But in more recent updates on the case, there is no mention of a serial killer, and it seems the only serial killer in upstate New York around that time, Robert Garrow, died in 1978. So unless these inmates had waited about 30 years to come forward with this tip, it doesn't seem likely. In 2021, the Poughkeepsie Journal ran a piece about several missing persons cases in the area. Apparently, following another tip, police jackhammered the stairs of someone's house in 2020 looking for the bodies of Mitch and Bonnie. They weren't there. Of course, without dental records at this point, it would be hard to identify the bodies if they were found. That is, unless they can manage to get any DNA off the remains, which are likely to be 50 years old at this point. 
Which, of course, sadly means that closure for this case is unlikely. In 1998, following advice from her rabbi, Bonnie's sister Cheryl added Bonnie's name to the Yizkor, a memorial at their synagogue. However, Ray, Bonnie's mother, wanted no part of it. She was still unwilling to accept that her daughter was dead. The Wisers, as of 1998, had never said Kaddish, the morning prayer, for their son. Mitchell's father, Sidney, then 71 years old, told Eric Greenberg, Not knowing is horrid. But if I ever found out he was dead, I think I would just die. I'm just praying to God he is still alive somewhere. By now, 50 years since Mitch and Bonnie's disappearance in 1973, it's likely that both sets of parents have died. If not, they're very old, and I would imagine the heaviness of grief never truly lifts, weighing on you until your dying day. And as for the living, their siblings and friends, the years keep on coming, but answers have never arrived. Whether Bonnie and Mitch ran away, were kidnapped, or died in a river as callous witnesses looked on, the real tragedy is that they were never with their families again. In a case like this, no one, living or dead, can rest in peace. Next time on Strange and Unexplained. A little while ago, I told you the story of Connie Converse, the overlooked talent who drove away from her life, never to be seen again. Now we'll hear the eerily similar story of Jim Sullivan. You can get that episode ad-free, plus three bonus episodes a month for just $7 at patreon.com slash strangeandunexplained. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Natalie Grillo and Angela Palladino. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, researched by Jess McKillop, edited by Eve Kerrigan, and sound engineered and mixed by Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Jordan Kai Burnett, Andrea Jones Sojola, and Luther Creek. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have a story you'd like us to cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, head over to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. If you like our show, please do help us out by giving us a five-star rating and a glowing review wherever you listen to podcasts. Our critics are vocal and unafraid of submitting those one-star reviews. If you don't like the show, feel free to give a one-star and a scathing review. The name of the podcast is Triggered. It's not for libs. <laughs> <laughs>